Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're probably already aware of CAST's new true crime investigative podcast, Lost in Panama. But if you haven't caught up, New evidence and testimony has recently been uncovered in the most recent episodes. It is shining new light on this case. The first four episodes of the series set up the foundation of what is known about this case, including a deep dive into the suspicious tour guide, the mysterious photos, and the remains. But episode five launches a whole new direction of investigation into this case. A woman connected to the confirmed homicide of her own son tells us that she knows the same men responsible for her son's death are also responsible for Chris and Lasanne's deaths. Not only that, but she presents to our team a full, detailed story of exactly what happened, how the women were abducted and killed. And somehow, it all adds up. All the pieces start to fit together, or at least start to make more sense. As time begins to run out on the investigation, but with this major breakthrough in hand, the team in Panama must attempt to assemble a compelling enough theory of the case in order to push the Panamanian government to admit that there's more going on here than meets the eye. We need them to reopen this case so that a much closer look can be taken at all the new evidence coming to light and the families affected can finally find some closure all these years later. Will they do it? Listen to all episodes of Lost in Panama, available now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode contains disturbing content. Please take care while listening. There is a story in the Old Testament about a prophet named Elijah. One day, Elijah went to visit a widow living outside of Israel. And there was a terrible drought at the time, and the widow was very poor. She only had enough flour and oil left for one last meal, and then she expected to starve to death. Elijah requested that the widow use her last ingredients to make him a meal, promising that if she did that for him, her flour and oil would never run out. And Elijah looked at her and he said, honor the prophet. And in doing so, by fixing me, the prophet, the food, he says, your supply will be unending. And because she honored the prophet, God overflowed her home with more than enough oil, more than enough flour. Because the widow gave her last resources to a prophet of God, God blessed her by giving her endless flour and oil. It's supposed to be a story about how God will take care of you, even in dire conditions, even when you are on the brink of death. But Cheryl didn't interpret it that way. Well, she would take those scriptures like that, and she would tell us that if we didn't honor the prophet, that we would die. We would literally die and that our families would not prosper. And she just used that. She just used those scripture references that didn't even have anything to do with cats or what she was doing or the ministry that she was supposedly having. This is Connie Gibbs. She followed Cheryl from 2002 until 2012. And over the course of that decade, Cheryl pressured her to foster dozens and dozens of cats at a time. 
It was an impossible situation for Connie. She was raising young children who are allergic to cats. We almost lost our little boy because of all the cats. And of course now he's almost 12 and he's healthy and he's fine. But that didn't mean anything whenever we were having to have him at the doctor's office every two days trying to clear up the issues that the the cat hair would do to him. You know, and some people, they just, they're allergic. But Cheryl didn't really believe in cat allergies. To her, allergies were a sign that a person's faith wasn't strong enough. She didn't care that people were allergic. She didn't care, you know, or what their landlord said or didn't say, you know. It's like, you will obey the prophet versus obeying landlords. In April of 2009, Cheryl wrote an email to her followers. If you have not gotten your animal, you need to do so immediately. This was during the swine flu outbreak. The email goes on to say, Your kids need to get dirty with a dog or a cat. Let the animals lay with the babies. Do everything you possibly can now to raise your immunity. This is why the Lord spoke to us three weeks ago. When God speaks, it is for a reason. And to delay can be a very bad place to be. These animals mean more than just having a pet and showing love. It could save your life. Eventually, Cheryl's request for her followers to adopt one cat or dog would drastically change. The end times were always a focus of Cheryl's teachings, but by 2010, she said she had discovered the key to salvation. She told her followers that the world would soon be consumed with war, fire, and holocaust. And the only way they would survive, the only way they would get into heaven, was through fostering as many cats as they could. The cats were divine. The cats would save them in the end. For her followers, this meant having anywhere between 20 and 80 cats in their homes. It was just, um, it was just weird. And I knew better because I was raised by a very godly mom and dad. So I knew better. But, you know, sometimes you just get sidetracked and sometimes you just get sucked into something that you think is good until you step back and you look at it and go, this is not good at all. So the cats were at the breaking point, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. The cats were our breaking point. Cats, divine creatures with the ability to whisk souls into heaven. When we first came across this story, that got my attention. But it's clear to me now that this really isn't about the cats. I believe the tithe and ba- the tithe and offering basket up there. I know you just do it on your own anyway. I'm so bad at that, aren't I? At least you know I'm not in it for the money, right? <laughs> so just tithe as you're supposed to tithe. Bless you all. And just watch your- Before her followers could believe in the cats, they had to believe in Cheryl. They had to believe that she was like Elijah, a representative of God. And like Elijah, Cheryl would ask her followers for everything they had. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist, a podcast about regular people who turn sinister simply by embracing opportunity. This is episode two of four on Cheryl Ruthven and Eva's Eden. I'm Hannah Smith. Cheryl didn't come from money. Her parents, Georgia and Clarence Snow, were middle class. A source who declined to be interviewed and didn't want to be identified 
told us that Georgia, Cheryl's mother, frequently advised her to marry rich and expressed unhappiness that Cheryl's father, Clarence, didn't make more money. Before Cheryl met Mark, she was working at Nordstrom, and then after they got married, she was a stay-at-home parent. Mark Walker is a developer in Whatcom County, and he's been very successful. When he was married to Cheryl, he gave her $5,000 a month for spending money. But he says that never really seemed to be enough. I, at that time, was making a good amount of money, and she was spending more than I was making every month. And it didn't matter how much I gave her, it was always, she always spent more. She went to a trip to Israel, and I had given her the money to go on the trip. I think I gave her like $5,000 to spend on the trip, which should have been more than enough for two weeks or whatever it was. That was just spending money, and she spent another $3,000 on rings. And I said, well, why did you spend $3,000 on rings? And her response to me was, well, I thought you liked rings. That trip to Israel is one that Cheryl took with Debbie Lynch back when she was still at Gates of Praise. Debbie liked to go to Israel to visit the Holy Land. And after Cheryl split from Debbie and started Freedom Fire Ministries, she continued the practice of traveling for a spiritual mission. Cheryl, along with members of Freedom Fire, started taking trips to Italy to take down strongholds. Destroying or taking down strongholds is an aspect of spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. In the unseen battle between God and the devil, strongholds are like spiritual fortresses that can exist in your mind or out in the world. And taking down the devil's strongholds is considered spiritual warfare and is usually done through prayer and worship. The thing is, these trips to Italy, they started to look and feel more like vacations. Uh, yeah, the, all the trips to Italy um, that she apparently had to go there and pull down the Catholicism strongholds, she would call them, uh, basically because Italy is rooted in Catholicism. And half of my other side, which I tried to ignore, is the fact that she really likes going to Italy and spending time over there. The food is great, great buildings, great things to look at. Italy is a good time. This is Ted Johnson. We heard from Ted briefly last episode. He and his family attended Gates of Praise and then followed Cheryl to Freedom Fire. Ted, his wife Brenda, and their daughter, Ariel, all went on a trip to Italy with Cheryl in 2005. Okay, successful trip. However, I think the next year it was, they wanted to go to Italy again. The next year, 2006, Cheryl planned another trip to Italy. Ted didn't go on this trip, but his wife Brenda and daughter Ariel did. And then again, the next year, in 2007, Cheryl planned another trip, this time to Scotland, and she wanted 30 of her church members to go with her. Ted Johnson was already having doubts about the ministry by this time. He felt conflicted about how much power Cheryl was starting to have over his life and about how much money he was giving, not just through tithing, but also through these trips to Europe. And now she wanted Brenda and my daughter to go again. Well, I just got done paying for one trip a year ago, and it's like, you know what? Ariel can stay here. Brenda wants to go. That's up to Brenda. But I don't need to send my daughter again, you know, not this year. And then I got several letters from Pastor Cheryl. I really feel Ariel needs to go, you know, but it's your decision. You go ahead and make the decision. 
I said, well, I made the decision. She's going to stay here. Brenda can go. Brenda always is going to want to go. I've seen the letters, emails, actually. Cheryl emailed Ted asking him to fast and pray over the decision, saying it was important for Ariel's spiritual growth to go on this trip to Scotland. Cheryl ends the email with, I'll honor whatever you have decided with Brenda and with the Lord. Ted writes back, and he explains he will not be paying for Ariel to go to Europe. Cheryl writes back again. She calls herself a prophet of God and asks Ted to reconsider. Ted writes back and says, Why is it so important that Ariel go? Why such the pressure to send her? What's with the short notice? Is this some kind of dictatorship where free will is not to be honored? Why are we as a church spending $170,000 on a trip? Next thing you know, uh, I get an excommunication letter. And at that point, because I went against leadership, they excommunicated me. And, uh, you know, before the excommunication letter, of course, I was not even asking questions, but just saying, this isn't right. What we're doing here is not right. Something's wrong here. The excommunication letter is long, and it comes not from Cheryl, but from her board of directors in what was now called Moriah Ministries. Cheryl changed the name from Freedom Fire to Mariah Ministries around 2006. The letter stated that Ted's excommunication was not a result of the disagreement about the Scotland trip, but instead about Ted's rebellious heart. Here are some excerpts from the letter. If you do not know in your spirit that pastor is as she indicates, as God indicates, as we have all come to know that she is— then you are not able to walk in the unity that will be demanded as we enter these end times. There will be no room for questioning. It will quite literally be a matter of life and death, and we will need to be able to submit. This is a trip taken with spiritual intent. Who are you to judge your brothers and sisters that are seeking to learn as much and as fast as they can as we enter this end time? Ted was shunned by Mariah Ministries. He wanted his wife, Brenda, to leave with him. You know, when you first got excommunicated and you had that conversation with Brenda and wanted her to leave, do you remember what reason she gave you that she would stay? Uh, She, yeah, she, no, she just would not, she wouldn't leave. At that point, at the excommunication, I believe, you know, she was slowly indoctrinated to know what she was going to be doing. You know, and that was pretty much the beginning of the end for our relationship, you know, because obviously Cheryl was not helping us get back together as a a pastor should do. You know, she was tearing us apart slowly. Brenda wanted to be wherever Cheryl was, and she wanted to go on all of the trips to Scotland, the spiritual trips to prepare them for the end times. In an email to the group, Cheryl wrote the following. We will be collecting $500 each for those of you who would like to be considered to go to Scotland this August. Your $500 does not guarantee your spot. It is your purity that will. But Brenda and Ted were still married and their finances were shared. Ted believes this was the driving force for what happened next. He says he always had a great relationship with his daughter, Ariel. But after Ted was excommunicated, their relationship began to suffer Ariel's demeanor around him changed. He says she was often upset, but he didn't really know why. One day, they were wrestling in the living room, which they did often. 
I think there was something in her mind. She knew about something, but she had to keep it a secret from me. But she wound up getting very angry at me. And I was, I was playing with her and she kicked me in the leg and I go, stop, stop Ariel. What are you doing? And she, she was kind of getting angry at me. And uh, so I said, no, don't be doing that. You go to your room, you know, settle down, what, whatever's happening. It was weird. I wound up being told by Brenda that I am now going to counseling. Counseling for what? You'll see when you get there. And I wound up having to go to a counselor because it got reported that Ariel bruised her leg when she kicked me in the leg during our wrestling match. And now I was being pulled and I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I got pulled into here because now I was abusing my kid out of that, out of that incident of wrestling after dinner. But this was all being orchestrated by Cheryl. And it was setting me up for the divorce. Ted could feel the growing strain on his marriage. Then one day, he came home from work and knew it was over. It was just a normal day. And I come home from work and it looked like the house got broke into. I thought we were robbed. And I walk in, you know, five o'clock in the evening and I'm looking around. I see on our dining room table, there's a card there. And it says, I'll always love you, but I have to do this for myself. And that was the day that my wife and daughter just bailed and left. I saw Ariel up till about she turned 18. So she's a legal adult now. And she's basically got persuaded not to ever talk to me again. And I haven't seen her for probably or heard of her or even know where she lives or even if she has the same name for probably now 12 or 13 years, 12 years. Brenda and Ariel moved to Columbia, Tennessee in 2013. Ted assumes they are still living there. Increasing isolation from family and friends, it's a warning sign of a potentially unsafe group or leader. By instilling fear and distrust of the outside world, the leader becomes the exclusive source of truth and salvation. This is a clip of Cheryl prophesying to her followers in 2009. I shall rent flesh from flesh, says God. I will divide households, says the Lord. I will divide husbands and wives, says God. Children shall rebel, mothers shall cry, says the Lord. But the power of my spirit, it shall be strong, says God. And I will call forth my people, says the Lord. Not that of your lineage, says God. Blasphemy flows through the blood, says the Lord. Would you hold on to that which does not honor the power of who I am? Let the continent sink, says the Lord, and so shall thy flesh of thy family's lie, says God. Who would you choose to serve? Dave Wetnall claims his marriage also fell apart because of Cheryl. Dave and his wife Lynn had been devoted to Cheryl since her time at Gates of Praise, but as Cheryl started changing her ministry, as she got further away from Christianity, Dave became skeptical. Lynn came home one day and said, we're all going vegetarian. I kid you not, the whole congregation, they're all uh, vegetarians, which led into them being vegans. It was like 50 people doing it all at the same time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. It wasn't just one thing that made Dave want to leave Mariah Ministries. While he was thrown by his wife's sudden change to veganism, it was also the doomsday talk, the increased focus on preparing for the apocalypse, But more than anything, it was his wife Lynn's growing devotion to Cheryl. Lynn started hiding things from Dave. He once found a bunch of crystals under the bathroom sink, as well as documents that Lynn had been filling out at Cheryl's request, questionnaires about dualism. Dave had seen enough. He was ready to leave, but Lynn wasn't. One of the conversations uh, that Lynn and I had was, what is it that Cheryl has that I don't have? And she says, well, I can trust her. And I go, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, I can trust her with my life. On Memorial Day weekend in 2009, Dave came home from a fishing trip with his two sons. So I'm in our house and Lynn is sitting on the couch and I could tell that there was something wrong. And she goes, I filed for a divorce. And it was just like out of nowhere. Dave's wife and sons moved out of the house. He says it was a long process in which his sons were slowly distanced from him. He has not talked to them since 2017, but he says he hasn't had real meaningful contact with them since 2011. Lynn and the boys moved to Tennessee as soon as the youngest turned 18. I've heard a lot of rumors that Cheryl dislikes men. Apparently once she poured juice all over a man's head in the middle of church just to humiliate him. I've heard that men were either in love with her or they disliked her. And if they disliked her, she got rid of them. Of course, these stories are coming from ex-followers who don't think highly of Cheryl. With Ted and Dave, I only have one side of the story, their side. I've not been able to speak with either of their ex-wives or any of the children. What I can look at are patterns, and there is a pattern of people, and specifically of men, who attended Cheryl's ministry and then found themselves divorced and estranged from their children. It has happened many times. It happened to Dave, it happened to Ted, and of course, it happened to Mark Walker, Cheryl's ex-husband. Cheryl and Mark separated in 2001, shortly after Cheryl became the pastor at Freedom Fire Ministries. At that time, Mark attended her services, but he was a skeptic, and he was not quiet about it. I'm speaking with him here in his home in Whatcom County. She had the whole congregation up there, and she was laying on her back with her legs in the air, and she was moaning like she was giving birth. And this went on and on, and she gets up, and she goes, Okay, you people, something was just birthed in the Spirit. It was very powerful. You just witnessed something very powerful. And I was just went, oh, man, <laughs> I just, 
I just thought that's ridiculous. And that's when I made the comment, whatever you guys do, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Mark told me that three days into his marriage with Cheryl, their relationship was basically over. But they had stayed together and they were raising their kids together. But this moment when Mark said, don't drink the Kool-Aid out loud to her entire congregation, it was a shift. He had questioned her standing as a prophet publicly. And Cheryl would not have that. It was shortly after this that Cheryl invited a woman to come live with them. Mark says she slept on their bedroom floor and that she was always around. Her name is Marcia, but Mark calls her the witness. We used to call the gal that slept on the floor the witness. So we knew that she was there for a reason. And, you know, I'd come home and Cheryl would pick a fight and start screaming and yelling. And I said, should I, should I open the door so this gal can hear this? Because <laughs> I knew it was just a show, right? It was just a, it was just a big show. And, you know, she wanted to put on a show that we were having a fight. And so one time I came home and she was doing that, yelling and screaming and picking a fight. And I wasn't buying in. And she kind of walked in front of me and then she jumped back into me and she goes, you pushed me. Okay. <laughs> so she called the police and the police came and I went to jail for a night. See, she said I pushed her. And it was interesting because three weeks earlier, she had called the police and, and uh, she came out and the police came out and they said, um, well, has there ever been any violence in your marriage? And she actually signed a document that said, no, there'd never been any violence in the marriage. And so the police go, well, we can't do anything. And so, you know, three weeks later, miraculously, I pushed her. And so I went to jail for a night and, and I got one phone call and that was to a divorce attorney and said, get me out of this. Marsha, the woman living with Mark and Cheryl, submitted a declaration to the Superior Court of the State of Washington for Whatcom County on August 14, 2002. The statement claims Mark was an aggressive person. She writes, Having been in the home when charges were laid and laying charges myself, I have firsthand witnessed a consistent behavior of rage. The thing is, Marcia was a follower of Cheryl. She believed Cheryl was a prophet of God. Marcia has since left Cheryl's ministry. And in recent years, she has said that she lied on that declaration, that Mark was innocent. She said the whole thing was Cheryl's plan to get custody of the kids. Marsha wrote in a Facebook message that she was considering speaking with us for the podcast, saying, I would only do this because Mark was the innocent party in all this, and my role had such a detrimental impact on him. Only the truth can set us free, and Mark needs to be vindicated. And then in a text, she wrote, I watched what Cheryl did to those kids at the beginning. They have been so brainwashed and conditioned from the very beginning. It was cruel beyond words. She ultimately declined to do an interview for the podcast. When you're falsely accused, which I was, they have to treat it like you're, you're, which I understand. You know, they have to treat it like I did something. So the state of Washington takes that over, and you have to basically prove your innocence. And so my attorney goes, you want to plead something? And I said, no, I want to go to court. I want to prove that I'm innocent because nothing happened, and I never would do that. And I never want my kids to believe that I would ever do that, ever. And so they dropped it. It's been almost 20 years since Mark and Cheryl divorced, eight years 
since he last saw his kids, Mark has done his best to move forward. Mark and Mary found each other in 2005 and got married shortly after. Their love for each other is sweet and palpable. They were both divorced with three kids when they met. At first, it must have seemed like they could become a modern Brady Bunch, but that was just a fantasy, and it didn't last very long. Mark and Mary do a good job of finding levity in the midst of sharing these dark memories. They laugh when they can about the past, but underneath the laughter is pain. Mark doesn't come off as a very emotional person, at least not to me, and that's fine. I'm a stranger interviewing him about the most intimate, painful details of his life. He mostly tolerates the uncomfortability throughout the day, but is still very kind. But when I bring up the divorce, there's no levity, there's no laughter. During the custody battle for the kids, Cheryl's claim that Mark had been physically abusive was taken into consideration. The child psychologist was amazing because she said, well, describe what happened. I said, nothing happened. And she completely believed me, which just blew me away because she had met Cheryl and she knew that it was false. And I just, at that point, I was... Sorry. Mark stops here because he gets emotional. It's not lost on me that after everything he has told me today, the thing that makes him tear up is the fact that in the midst of this very dark time in his life, someone believed him. I was just surprised at the uh, support, you know, that you got that kind of support from somebody. And so I, I was awarded 50% of the children, but I told the guardian ad litem at the time, I said, if I don't get 100%, I will never see my kids at some point. Mark and Cheryl officially divorced in June of 2004. According to Mark, Cheryl received almost $750,000 in the divorce settlement. Cheryl knew that wouldn't last forever. She would need a new source of income. I mean, I'm sure we bought and paid for the house on Alder Grove many times over. This is Connie Gibbs again. She started attending Freedom Fire in 2002. At first, Connie and her husband enjoyed going to Freedom Fire. But around the time that Cheryl changed the name of the ministry from Freedom Fire to Mariah Ministries, things began to change. Connie and her husband have four adopted children with special needs. Connie said Cheryl was very supportive of all of the adoptions. But she was also aware that the state of Washington offers significant tax credits to families who adopt special needs children. One year we ended up with $30,000 return, and she wanted all of it. You have to understand, there was five families in the church that had done adoptions, and especially special needs adoptions. So she knew that the credits were coming in. As soon as it came in, she would ask us, did your refund come in? Did your refund come in? She would ask those things, and she's very manipulative in how she asks for money. She makes it where if you don't give the money, you're going to get a bill. I mean, she would give us bills for cat food and cat litter. Connie was paying for the cat litter and cat food herself, but she feared if she didn't pay those bills Cheryl sent her, there would be consequences. Around 2007, Cheryl's sermons became less uplifting. More often than not, someone was getting reprimanded from the pulpit. One little girl, at the time she was barely 14, she just mutilated her from the pulpit because she didn't like what her mom and dad had done. 
So she called her a whore and a slut and all kind of things from the pulpit. And I didn't want those things happening to my daughter. So we kind of just tucked tail and done whatever she said to do just to be able to not be brutalized. And we had watched her brutalize several, several families. So Connie paid the bills that Cheryl sent her. At one point, Connie says she gave Cheryl a check for $6,000 just to stop Cheryl from sending more bills. And Connie and her husband do not have a lot of money. There was no fee to join Mariah Ministries. There was just the expectation that all of the members would tithe, which is a standard practice among churches. Usually it's 10% of your income every month. And that money is used to keep churches running, pay the bills, the staff. Beyond tithing... There were other ways that the members were expected to contribute financially. Oddly, one of the things Cheryl required of her followers was to purchase costumes. There was a sock hop night in which she asked all of the women to wear poodle skirts. There was a spy night. Everyone had to dress like spies. One time, Cheryl was planning a sermon, and it had a metaphor in it involving monkeys and bananas— So she emailed all of her followers and told them to go out and buy monkey costumes and wear those monkey costumes to the church service. Oftentimes, these events ran through dinner or late into the evening. Cheryl would email the group and specify the refreshments that they should bring. In one email, she wrote, homemade cookies, please. Oatmeal with raisins and cinnamon would bring a smile to your pastor's tired heart. Another time, she requested cheese and fruit trays. Buying a poodle skirt or a cheese tray is not an astronomical expense, but it's not really about the price tag. It's the way Cheryl dictated, down to the detail, exactly how her followers should spend their money. The costumes were not optional. None of it was optional. Tithe 10% was never enough, and she knew when, if you weren't at least giving 10%, she knew and you get called out about it. So there was always schemes happening to convince us to give over and above. One time, without explanation, she told us to bring a glass jar with some change, just throw some change in it, bring it in. And we were supposed to, for like a week and a half, be responsible for doubling the amount of money that was in that jar each day. That turns into a lot of money really fast, especially if you were over-aggressive and threw a lot of change in there to start out with. I remember feeling like, I don't have money to do this, but I was still responsible the next week to come in with, you know, 85, 90 bucks that I didn't have to give to her as a sign of faith so she could have money. So she would do stuff like that all the time. And you would hand that money to her? Or put it in the offering basket. Mark Walker gave Cheryl over half a million dollars in their divorce. But Cheryl acted as if he left her with nothing. She told everybody in the organization that I left her destitute. She'd, she'd come in at, on a Sunday night and say, I need $30,000. And she'd make the people in the organization give her $30,000 as fast as they could. And I don't know if she came up with it that night or not, but... People borrowed money against their houses. People sold their houses. People put money on credit cards. This is Rachel again. She tricked us into giving her money so many times. She she would have us do big donations for an orphanage we supported in Africa. And years later, we found out she used it for her children's college education. She used it for um, plastic surgery on herself. 
this money that we would just give her so much money, so much money, and she would just use it for herself. Once you've started giving your time, money, it's easy to give more and then to give more because you need to believe that everything you've already given means something. Maybe you've given hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands. Maybe you've given up your husband or your father. It doesn't really matter because you've given it all with the understanding that the profit will replenish everything you've lost and more when the time is right, when the world ends. Ted, Dave, and Mark were not the only people to lose their families. There would be more. The prophet always asks for more. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I spent a lot of time bawling my eyes out on not this carpet. It's a different carpet, but in this kind of foyer area waiting to be let in. Rachel and I are at the old Freedom Fire building in Bellingham. She mentioned one night specifically. We had a service really late, but she called us back around 10 o'clock at night, made us all wait in this foyer while you could hear her crying and screaming on the inside with piano playing. Just I remember sitting in this foyer, just, it was a weird mix because there's a lot of folks kind of laughing and talking. And I remember being very sensitive at the time and just, I was in a corner crying because I knew something was wrong. Something is wrong, something is wrong. Cheryl let Rachel and the others into the sanctuary where all of the tables and chairs had been turned upside down. And then we come in there and Cheryl told us that somebody betrayed her and it let a demonic spirit in and they upturned all the tables and chairs. At the time, Rachel took Cheryl at her word. But looking back now, she believes Cheryl, along with the help of her sons and a few other men from the church, upturned the furniture themselves. They did whatever happened with the chairs and told us it was demonic powers. And that's why I think we had to wait so long is for them to get it set up just right. It's just, it sounds so silly, but you believe it. Yeah, in the moment, did you really think that there were demonic powers that had gone in there and disrupted things? I know a part of me was like, no, (laughs) but you don't listen to that part. That part's doubt. That part will get you in trouble. If you, from those years all the way to the end, I was afraid to think thoughts because I thought Cheryl would know I was thinking thoughts. If I doubted something she said, I immediately had to think, then the problem's with me, not with her. So, no, I didn't disbelieve when she told me demons attacked the sanctuary. Cheryl said that a demon had been let into the sanctuary because someone had betrayed her. And that person ended up being Maureen, unfortunately for her, that Cheryl blamed it all on. Maureen Herbig. 
Maureen Herbig. She was married to Pete Herbig. They have three kids together, and it was well known that they were the wealthiest members of Cheryl's ministry. Pete is an anesthesiologist. They had been devoted followers of Cheryl's for years since Gates of Praise. But I think the best example of just how deep their devotion was to Cheryl at that time is this. When Cheryl and Mark separated, they moved out of the house they'd been living in together. And at that point, Cheryl needed a new place to live. Well, Pete and Maureen Herbig purchased her a house, just bought her a house, gave her the title and everything. As far as followers go, Pete and Maureen Herbig could be considered the picture of perfection. When she needed a house, they bought her one. They had been in her good graces for a really long time. But everything changed for them in the summer of 2004. First, Maureen Herbig lost her good standing with Cheryl. That night when Cheryl called everyone back to the church around 11 p.m. and made a big deal about demons disrupting the tables and chairs in the sanctuary, she blamed it all on Maureen Herbig. It was always Maureen was a betrayer. Maureen was uh, Judas. And so it was just every time she'd dig at Maureen, it's just she'd use these um, metaphors to say why she's bad. As we covered in last episode, in May of 2004, Cheryl initiated a relationship with Mary Gunderson Lancaster. But after three months, Cheryl ended it abruptly. And around that time, Cheryl shifted her focus to Pete Herbig. And around that same time, Cheryl's child support payments from her ex-husband, Mark, were changing. She would receive less money than before. What happened was Cheryl called me and said she wanted to know how to make that chunk of money equal what I was giving her monthly. And I said, well, you have to invest it and you have to take some risk when you invest it. So she goes, I'm I'm just going to marry Pete. And I started laughing. I actually started laughing. She goes, well, that's not the response I thought I was going to get. It just, it just made me laugh. Mark told me that he wasn't actually that surprised to hear that Cheryl wanted to marry Pete. Yeah, I mean, Pete was the only person within the congregation that had money like that, being a doctor. And money motivated Cheryl, and I just knew that, that that's what was going to happen. Pete and Maureen Herbig were officially divorced on July 27th. 2005. Maureen changed her name back to Maureen Plum. Pete and Cheryl were officially married less than three months later on October 3rd, 2005. You might think that if your pastor convinced two congregants to divorce so that she could then marry one of them, it would cause a stir in the church. It would be a scandal. It was not a scandal. I wanted to know how Cheryl got away with that. What did she say to her followers about the situation? Well, I heard from one person that she accused Maureen of cheating on Pete. I heard from someone else she said Maureen was having sex with demons, whatever that means. But I think the most poignant thing I was told about the whole situation is something Rachel Gunderson said. She just said it didn't matter what Cheryl said about Pete and Maureen's divorce. Cheryl didn't need an excuse. She didn't need to convince her followers of anything. Cheryl was a prophet of God. She could do whatever she wanted. And I think that is clearly seen in the simple fact that 
Maureen continued to follow Cheryl. In fact, she helped plan Cheryl and Pete's wedding. I believe she still follows Cheryl to this day. For a time after Pete and Cheryl were married, Cheryl continued to publicly berate and shame Maureen. Here's Rachel again. I don't know if she ever told us why she was mad at Maureen, but I think it was jealousy. Maureen was really pretty. Maureen had, you know, Pete as a husband at one point, so there's always going to be jealousy there. But fast forward in the years, Maureen stuck around and did so much for Cheryl. Cheryl eventually would compare us to her, saying, Maureen is, you know, she never asks for anything, and she always gets stuff done. Why aren't you getting stuff done? You know, she never complains, and she always does what I tell her to. Why don't you guys do what I tell you to? But that's how abusers use people. They bash them, and then they bring them close and make them special, and then they hit them and bring them close. So Maureen got all of it. Mark and Mary Walker knew Pete Herbig. They knew him before he was married to Cheryl, and they knew him after. So let's talk about Pete a little bit. So we already kind of covered how he was married to Maureen, and then Cheryl intervened and broke them up, and then Cheryl married Pete. But then it sounds like they were only really living together, only really together physically for a very short period of time. And then what do you think happened there? Well, what we've been told, um, it's very sad. Part of what Cheryl does is gather information, and she uses that information against people. So Pete had indicated to her that he had a dream, and the dream involved the kids. And Cheryl basically said, you're a pedophile and you need to get out of my house, but you need to keep sending all your money to me. And Pete believed that. I think he still might believe that. Uh, He's embarrassed by it and doesn't want anybody to hear that. And so um, he has never lived with her again and sends his money to her. Pete moved out of Cheryl's house. Eventually, he moved to Vail, Colorado for a job. And then a few years later, he moved again. He is still married to Cheryl. I believe he believes what Cheryl's offering him is true. And that's that he's going to have a great afterlife and he's going to be part of the very elect of God. And so he's willing to sacrifice everything on earth to have that. And so he does. She's convinced him to do that. If you could say anything to Pete now, you know, what would you say? It's a lie, Pete. You're being conned. When I was talking with Mary Walker, she said something that really resonated with me. I think it's the best way that someone who has never been in a cult might understand the mindset of being in a cult. She compared it to being in an abusive relationship. Gaslighting is a real powerful tool. And it's not that whether it's a relationship or whether it's a cult, it's not that you're that stupid. It's that they're that good. Like, it's that Cheryl is that good at manipulating. It's that my ex-husband was that good at devaluing me over many, many, many years. And I think that's what Cheryl does with her followers or has over the years. You know, she deconstructs people. She takes you apart. To the point where you just become a shell and you're looking for her approval in everything that you do. The last couple of times that we saw Pete, her husband, he looked like a shell. It's an interesting way to put it, 
deconstructing people. Did Cheryl really believe that all of these ceremonies and costume parties and trips to Europe were spiritual endeavors? Or were they methods of deconstructing people? Were they ways to keep them busy and tired and humiliated and broke, as well as constantly afraid that the end of the world was coming? In 2009, Mariah Ministries became the Oneness Foundation. Cheryl bought an old Masonic temple in Blaine, Washington, and moved the ministry there. And underneath the temple, an empty basement would become a cat oasis, the home of Eva's Eden Cat Rescue. Cheryl had big plans for her ministry, but one person stood in the way of those plans, her ex-husband, Mark Walker. Next time on The Opportunist. We always had the perception that she might be doing something bad to us. And the perception turned out to be right when Rick told us. He was supposed to die. She had her whole church pray for Mark to die. The whole church, 180 people. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with River Donahue, Peisha Eaton, Amanda Elliott, and Kate Mays. Colin Thompson is our executive producer and music supervisor. Anton Doty is our editor and music editor. Matt Sewell is our audio mixer and master. The cover art is by Arvin Lee. The ending credits song is Redemption's Gone by Tim John Howarth and James Patrick Kaleth. You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Salvation purified
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.